Hello, and welcome to Kick Out 299. I'm Rachel. My pronouns are they, them. I'm Alicia. My pronouns are she, her. And today we are here with our friend and fantastic writer, Sarah Kershak, as we celebrate the release of her new book, Work It Out, a mood-boosting exercise guide for people who just want to lie down, and that's released on April 18th. We're very, very excited for it. But um, we're also here to talk a little bit about DDT and Daisuke Sasaki. We have a lot of fun things planned for this episode to talk about for this uh, this little chat. So Sarah, first things first, why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners who you are, where they can find you, and a little bit about your new book. All right. Hi, uh, my name is Sarah Kerchak. She, her, I am a long-term freelance writer who's covered everything from um, martial arts culture to music, movies, books, um, and a little bit of professional wrestling. I also doubled as a personal trainer for part of that time until I completely burnt out. My first book actually deals with that burnout in part. It's called I Overcame My Autism and All I Got Was This Lousy Anxiety Disorder. Came out three years ago this month. Um, and my new book is coming out approximately three years later, which is a book based on my experiences as both, you know, a neurodivergent trainer, but also as a burnt out trainer who has many times over just absolutely stopped giving a fuck and had to figure out how to get back into working out because I do tend to hate my life slightly less when I'm moving my body in some way. So these are just very bare bones and notes for how to do that. Um, also, just like how to stop hating yourself so that even if you're not getting the quote unquote, like gains that people think you should be getting from a workout, Maybe you just have a healthier relationship with your body. Maybe, you, you know, move it in a way that doesn't suck and you build upon that. The message is really gentle, but it's shared by someone who's like really half caring, half an asshole. So I hope it's easier to take from people who don't want just, you know, um, perky coddling or anything. So, yeah, I hopefully no nonsense, no bullshit. Here's some shit you can do in bed if you can't get out of bed. Um, and here's why you hate fitness if you hate fitness. <laughs> Um, here's why it's okay. Here's why you don't suck. And um, here's what you can do next. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fantastic. And it's just a book that's incredibly needed. And Alicia and I have talked quite a bit about that. And uh, actually, what I wanted to ask was that uh, this is your second book. And it is very different from your first book. But when you were actually describing it, there's a lot of things that sort of connect together, which I found is interesting dealing with uh, that neurodivergency and that anxiety that you feel. So um, could you give us just a little bit of insight on the writing process for this second book and what made you want to write it? I know you've touched on that just a little bit. After my first book, which um, had a really hard editing process, um, the writing process was hard too because it was personal essays. So even though it's not like a complete tell-all memoir, it's just little chunks of my life that I've broken up to do highlight different issues that affect more autistic people. It was a lot to sort of relive and just put on a paper um, and to expose yourself to the rest of the world. So that had been really hard. And then it came out in April 2020. And that was also hard because it kind of felt like I was doing it for nothing. And even though everyone was very supportive and it's done about as well as you could hope a small Canadian published book on a niche topic by an unknown author to do, it just I didn't know if I had prospects after that. I didn't trust my own voice because of how hard the editing process had been. 
And then a friend of mine who is also my favorite editor to work with, Jess Zimmerman, started working at Quirk Books. Well, she was looking for new ideas to pitch as part of her job. Um, I was despairing about the fact that I had no future. So, I mean, it all ties in that Sasaki actually does fit into a like heartfelt <laughs> fitness book because I was completely nihilistic through most of this process. Um, she happened to be like, you know what would be a great idea? We worked on this little article. I think it was 2015 it came out where it had just been like depressed workout tips from a depressed personal trainer. Um, and it was one of that website, the establishment RIP, their best, one of their best articles ever um, in terms of performance, which is great bragging rights, but also made me feel, ter- feel terrible because it meant that other people needed it and that they weren't getting it from elsewhere. So it's like, wow, I am so grateful for this attention, but it is coming on the backs of people's genuine suffering and need. So yeah, Jess was like, hey, remember how well that did? Hey, remember how you have nothing else to do? I'm going to put together a pitch for a book that is sort of based on the same idea of tips for uh, people who are depressed and anxious who want to get into working out. Um, And I'm going to recommend you as the writer, which was ideal for me because I wasn't even in a position where I think I could have written a proper, the actual like pitch you have to put into the book proposal. I, I wasn't up to that. So it was actually Jess's job in this case for this kind of book to do it. And then I auditioned and got it. They liked my sample chapter. And so then I got to just, I didn't even have to think of the entire concept of the book. Jess had all the chapters laid out and I just got to fill in the blanks and, you know, put together like from my own heartfelt wisdom um, to tell people what was bullshit they could do instead. And it was, I didn't have a lot of time to write this. I am fantasizing about a day, hopefully, where I will get to write another book. And hopefully it won't have to be written in approximately two months, which both of my books now have ended up. The original draft had to be done in, I think it was eight weeks for the first book. And this one was a little closer to three months, but it was over the holidays. So I had to take time off for that too. Uh, This one was so painless compared to what I had been through. Just to be able to like, write from my perspective and share my ideas and experience as opposed to just like sharing my actual guts on a page was a much more welcome experience and just because I had felt kind of badly about how I'd burned out of fitness and thought that was a wasted part of my life I had started to wonder like if I hadn't spent those years trying to be the perfect fitness instructor and realize before I realized that was never going to work for me personally. And it's not just because I'm autistic. There are plenty of great autistic personal trainers. It was just not for me to be able to like realize that time wasn't lost and that it could be useful for something was really heartening too. And then it also meant that I got to justify the purchase of those Bowflex adjustable dumbbells. So (laughs) I got new toys. Uh, I got to feel like maybe I hadn't wasted an entire chunk of my life. Um, and I got to write a book that did not require me to almost kill myself. So it, it was actually really quite pleasant the whole way through. That's thank you for just that heart-wrenching honesty. It's it's really good to hear. And it's good to hear that the book was as needed for you as it will be for your readers, because it, it really will be. Um, I've had a lot of issues with my own, you know, personal image throughout my mm-hmm. life and um, have struggled a lot through that. And then I know, Alicia, you were talking to our friend too about um, 
just how this book sort of speaks to her as well and presents a need for that kind of thing. And it's just really, really cool how this book appeals to different people with different situations. I don't know if you wanted to share a little bit of two story. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, um, it's two story and it's also um, my story because I am like working through a significant back injury still that has been like really detrimental um, since it happened to me like in January and it's been awful to work through and um, get over, but that's um, kind of what my friend or our friend rather too. And I were talking about, um, we were in the middle of like a busy store and she was um, telling me something about how uh, she has found it really difficult to get back into working out the way she used to before Mm -hmm. before she had um surgery and you know her doctor keeps telling her that like no like you should be good to go like you should just be able to jump right back into working out um but it doesn't work that way like bodies don't necessarily just work that way after Mm -hmm. surgery so anything that she's tried to do in the gym or in like her normal workouts has been really hard and it's, it's like her body hurts and like she just can't do it but she like you were saying before um she's an, another type of person where she feels better if she's moving her body but she can't mm-hmm. figure out how to move her body in a way that doesn't hurt her so when she was telling me about this I was like wait oh my god my friend Sarah wrote a book and I'm like pulling up your book and like the mm-hmm. Amazon app in the middle of this like busy store on like New Year's Day or something when, like whenever we were all together and um she was like oh my god like this is amazing and like she's gonna she was gonna pre-order it because what you wrote this for is like it'll speak to her too and I think like to Rachel's point like if you have like body image issues, because I know you've, you've said to us, Sarah, like this book doesn't talk about like calories and like those like very yeah. harmful and hurtful things that go into like what people think about when it's, when we're talking about what fitness and what health are. And that's what's so nice is that you have these low impact workouts that get you moving your body so that you stop feeling shame around that, but also stop feeling shame around what health and what fitness looks like, which I think speaks to such a wide range of people and that's why this book is just so refreshing I I think I really really hope it helps and I'm also in a panic that it won't after all of this (laughs) hype but no it's well for one thing I think what I took into account when I was writing it that maybe some people who have pre-reviewed it so far or looking at it from the outside haven't is that not everyone who is like depressed or anxious or having any ideas about fitness has never tried before. In fact, you know, some of us not only are are trying like trying for the first time is daunting enough, but when you have to get back on the horse and you're not only fighting against society's standards, but you're fighting against what you used to do and probably how good you felt about that, um, it can be really hard to compete with like your younger, fitter self. Every time I, you know, do a dignified push-up now in the back of my head I'm thinking about when I used to show off and do pile push-ups drunk at parties which is really obnoxious but I was very proud of it in my 20s when I was drunk and doing more than boys so there's just like so many different terrible things that happen in your brain if you're at all inclined to hate yourself and who really isn't in our world um, that you have to combat So there are like workout ideas in the book, but I consider them a bonus because from my own experience with my own workouts, talking to friends and also just the clients I actually worked with when I was a personal trainer, uh, like telling them what to do and making sure they're safe and making it work for them are obvious parts of the job. But the bigger part of the job is just like making sure they have any self-worth about it, that they feel okay about it and just constantly talking down against a lifetime of bad messages so 
um like even if there's enough no workout in the book that appeals to people what i'm hoping is just like you constant reinforcement and repetition that there are reasons why you're struggling you're still okay you're not like the worst you deserve oxygen you deserve to feel okay in your day-to-day life um and if it takes longer that's fine it's like if feeling like shit about yourself and beating yourself up was going to get you up and doing squats or sprints or whatever it would have happened already so let's try something else yeah I think that's absolutely fantastic and like you know we've all said and you've said Sarah's everybody's journey is different so you know the exercises might not work but the message will resonate somewhere down the line. Like it's, it's really comes down to the messages you take away and, and it seems you've really um, nailed it and have a lot of heart put into this book. And I think that's really, really phenomenal. Um, and speaking of your heart and the things <laughs> that speak to you um, that you've put into the book is uh, that you've, I know you've name dropped um, some several wrestlers, actually, as we talked more about this book, but I remember you specifically talking about two key wrestlers, uh, and that would be Miyu Watanabe and Endo Tetsuya. And I sort of wanted to know what it was about them specifically, like how did they sort of inspire you and your own relationship with fitness? I'm really glad you asked this because there was originally a much a longer explanation in the book that had to be cut for space. And I'm assuming no one else I do any promo with will ever ask this. So this is my opportunity to shout them out. Um, in the back of the book, I start to, in the appendix, get into suggestions for different kinds of like fitspo or inspiration you can look into. And one of the workout types I call like the rabbit hole. And that's for the nerds who get really into what fitness is and why it's working and want to learn more about why their body ticks once they start. And that has been most of my fitness life, except for the real burnout phases, but I am a nerd about it. In my suggestion for people to look at who could inspire you, I meant I suggested that people, you look at people not for like what their body looks like or what their max rep is, but for a relationship to fitness that speaks to you in some way or inspires you in some way. And the two people that really do that for me are Miu and Endo. Um, Miu, because she's probably a little taller than me and a similar body build. In fact, the first time my mother ever saw her, she's like, oh, she has the same body shape as you. And now what I took that as perhaps the highest compliment I'd ever heard. I was like, I wish I had her shoulders. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's so it's a very like accessible hero to me that this is not even in terms of like looks but like power and speed like this is something I identify with and just to watch her get stronger was exciting enough but the thing that really inspires me about her is how gleeful she is about how strong she is she is just absolutely thrilled to be able to pick up all of her fellow colleagues and throw them around spin them around and even if you watch like her tiktoks when she's not only lifting heavy weights and dancing with them but sometimes doing them on a bosu so that she's working in all sorts of extra core strength and stability while she's dancing around with giant weights that to me is the ideal of what i want to be in my life is to just be really fucking happy <laughs> with what my muscles are doing and why they're working um so that's why Mia Watanabe is my fitspo. And then with Endo, it was like the first time I ever saw him. 
one of the first things I ever thought. And this speaks to what a nerd I am. I was like, wow, like that is a man with a really functional transverse abdominis. Like I could just <laughs> tell that he had incredible, not just abs, but inner core strength in a way that's really functional. Just in the way he moved, I was like, this is someone who is probably really thoughtful about his workouts and not just in the way you could see it, that he has quite an impressive body, but uh, that there's been a, that like next level of training. If you've ever worked out at a gym or had to hang out at a gym, you'll notice that there are the jocks, but then there are also the muscle nerds who have like a timer on so they can go sneak off and have their protein shake at the right time because it's kind of timed down to the second um, and who are super nerdy and can not only talk about their one rep, mat, one rep max, but they can also talk about how they get there and how they plan for it. And that first impression of Endo has been proven right over and over again. Sometimes it's just like funny, charming stuff about how he has to incorporate protein powder-based burns into some of his promos. Um, but also anytime he talks about exercise and shares it, you can see the level of just like thought and understanding that goes into it. Um, and of course, he has become a personal trainer now too. That's his side gig. Um, and I'm just like without knowing the guy or ever working with him I am assuming that he is pretty incredible at that job because it's as a nerd just really exciting to see someone in any business really to be that thoughtful about their workouts and to have just like beautiful form and everything makes sense that he does when you watch him do workout videos um, but to see it in pro wrestling where traditionally people have not been incredibly responsible lifters in the past is um has been a real revelation for me so yeah I love watching his workouts I love when he keeps us updated on his deadlifts um apparently yesterday he had the worst deadlift in the universe or something so he had a cheat day to calm himself but um yeah no it, it's like he is the purest muscle nerd I have seen in wrestling and it's just really cool to geek out and watch that side of him too it's really funny because the first time I had heard you talk about like muscle nerds who time their protein shakes mm -hmm. I think was during our episode on Higuchi and Endo. And um, you had said like it in that exact same way. And then recently against Narki Doi, he had that press conference where he pulls out a protein shake because he had to dig yes. at it in like that exact time frame. And I just absolutely died because you had you you had him down to a T there. So that was just really good to see. I think back to I want to say it was about 2018 or early 2019 when he was facing Marafuji they had a press conference and like right at the time he had to pull out his little like box of rice and eat and then Marafuji was like are you drunk and Endo was like no because and then he launched into what was clearly attempting before he got cut off to be an explanation of how alcohol interferes with the process of protein synthesis which is how your muscles repair after you've worked out I was just like wow <laughs> this guy he's legit like the to say that to Mara Fuji too yeah that's it the was... right person to say it to though he, he would listen to Endo in any other like scenario <laughs> yeah he would he'd be really into it actually yeah and that's really great using wrestlers as inspiration. I was the same way when I got into fitness. Like I said, mm -hmm. I struggled with body issues and it was actually um, WWE's Asuka, uh, Kana, seeing, I liked what you said about Miu because seeing her body 
um, and, you know, sort of comparing it to mine. She's about my height and and had about my weight. And it just, it felt good to see yeah. someone who was strong and, you know, still considered beautiful, but, you know, could perform. And that um, it just meant a lot to me at the time. So I'm glad you really mentioned that. And I hope that resonates with a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, that obviously there's a dark side to idolizing wrestlers in terms of fitness because not all of them make good choices. And there can be like huge body images for them, but then that also transposes into their fans. Um, but there is another side of it where there you can start to appreciate what a body does over top of what it looks like. Um, and just like, not that it has to be an elite performer even, just that it can do cool things or that you can be proud of other things that haven't necessarily been normally celebrated and start to find like your own vision of why living in this flesh prison is kind of okay. Indeed. And I wanted to ask you as well, not to give away all of the little tidbits like this that are in the book, but I think you also talk about Naito Tetsuya in the book as well. And I wanted to ask you about um, why you included him, because I think that he's a really interesting choice, but there's something about him specifically that I think is really fascinating, but I want to hear you talk about it first. So he actually came up totally separate of, I wasn't trying to sneak him into the book which sometimes I do occasionally like have an agenda I was trying to figure out how to mention Sasaki in this one because he's in a footnote in my first book that didn't happen so but just completely organically I was trying to explain that you can do a workout at like any time you want um of course if you have other commitments in life you have to plan around that but I think there's this idea that you know get up in the morning, do your workout, hustle, or, you know, do it at night for whatever fake calorie burning fitness is in there. Um, so when I was talking about like, trying to find out what your own schedule is, and as much as you're able to manage it in your own life, um, like working with your body's rhythms, and when you're motivated. And when it came time to think of an example, all I could think of was the fact that Tetsuya Naito quite often works out at the gym at like 3 a.m. He gets wired after matches, can't go to sleep. So it's a time where he will just like go do some cardio, watch his match over to see what it was like. Um, and that's just work what works for him. That's his body's natural cycle. He gets it in. It all works out for him. So yeah, <laughs> bizarrely enough, uh, Tetsuya Naito became like the example of like, I think I just to give it context, kind of like, you know, Beloved Japanese wrestler, Tetsuya Naito. Um, <laughs> and I go to the example of, of like, yeah, here is what a, a, like a professional performer of an athletic background does. And if it's good for him, you can sure as hell do it. I'm so happy that you mentioned him in that context for, I guess, two reasons. One being that I think his schedule and his more nocturnal way of like functioning is often made into like the punchline of a joke with him. Yeah. Um, which like, I, I get it. It's a little bit more unusual the way he keeps his schedule. But to that point, it, it sort of works for him. Like he just he's does, a guy yeah. who finishes a show and then he goes to the gym. Like that's just how he functions. Um, so and it's there's like a reason that. that a lot of gyms are 24 hours. I mean, he's technically yeah. a shift worker in there with the other shift workers in the middle exactly, of the night. Exactly, exactly. For Naito, we don't think he's doing that because he's like going through something. That's just how his body functions. But yeah. like to your point about 
part of why you wrote this book. Like if you are that person who is like, you know, feels ha- like they have a lot more energy at 2 a.m., like, like go with that. And I was watching mm-hmm. a lot of like videos this week for some reason. I fell down like a TikTok hole, but um, I was watching a lot of videos from people talking about like how unfair it is that we don't live in a society that like prioritizes these different sleep schedules. Like that's how society used to be. And then like, if you had that sort of like natural rhythm to your body, you would just be like a, like a light, like uh, you would, you would like the, you know, the streetways that, you know, you know, yeah. you do that type of job. Like that's just what you would, that's your function in society. We don't really have that anymore in our, in mm-hmm. our society today. So we don't prioritize these things and we don't encourage people to just go with their natural cycles and rhythms and how that can really like affect your body. So it's just nice to like have that example of someone and like that example for people too, who are like going through it because you can't control those things when you're going through it. So I just yeah. think it wraps around really nicely. It's cool. Yeah. I have been a night owl many times in my life, so I understand it too. And how, you know, with all the advantages and privileges we have in this world, we apparently want to adhere to a bullshit schedule. that's not really necessary right now either and make, everyone else forced into it too so yeah take back what you can do squats in the middle of the night <laughs> just reminds me of um what i think you sent it to me alicia it was like revenge procrastination where you stay up late to because you have no control over your oh that's uh, what i do day. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah just stay up forever so that the next day never has to come revenge procrastination yeah. yeah well if you can turn it into fitness it's not the worst thing right no. Yeah. Uh, you also, speaking of sort of uh, things that were meant to be in the book, kind of got cut out. You had originally wanted to uh, put in another DDT wrestler with Hiroshima, hadn't you? Who is, uh, I think yes. you, you specifically called him a functional training god, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> he really is. Um, if you can go back into like the early days of the pandemic, I want to say it was pretty much April 2020 to early May 2020 on his Twitter account. He every day was just doing a like one move you can do at home during lockdown with either just your body weight or sometimes he showed up with a towel that he would use for a little prop um, and a mat to work on. And it started with like sort of basic stuff like your push up or something like that. But it got increasingly creative, but it was all really smart stuff, just completely just functional training that worked your body in a way that might be different and challenging but not stupid like a lot of the like trendy fitness can be where you're doing something to look weird so that people will get the novelty out of it and because it's hard but it doesn't actually do anything for your body um anything you see within that month is a fantastic exercise there's um one he does on the floor with his forearms on each end of a towel where he kind of does like chest flies but using his arms sliding across the towel where you also get the core activation in of doing it from a plank position i just call those hiroshimas now when i do them but i have a really fun really challenging workout and i feel like the coolest person ever when i'm able to do a good set of them so yeah at the very end we had a few extra pages in the back of the book so i was told to suggest sort of like outside workout ideas of where you could look for inspiration whether it's like Instagram influencer accounts I thought that were helpful or workout ideas and I just desperately wanted to include Hiroshima's little Twitter videos 
but we ran out of space and also it's really convoluted to tell someone how to get to a specific time on a twitter account mm-hmm. in a different language so yeah but please by all means if you're listening to this like look up Harasra's workouts that are absolutely beautiful that was sort of one of the reasons you got into DDT wasn't it Alicia kind of because you were a helpful guide in that journey and that was like one of the first things for some <laughs> reason because I mean we were all effectively in lockdown when I when I met you but mm-hmm. that was like one of the first things that Rachel showed me was Hiroshima's workout videos and I was like so charmed by this man who is so like he's so strong and he makes like he's he's like smiling so he's such a lovely smile and he's like doing all of these like workouts and it's like if I did any one of these right now this would probably send me into a coma but his smile (laughs) is so disarming um with the way he's presenting it but like I thought that was so lovely and like as you get to know him it's like such a him thing to do like he's going to help right now in this awful situation for everyone by showing you a way you can be in your home moving your body with him and I could see from the comments that that really resonated with people like people looked forward to him oh yeah it It meant it made a uh, you know a great difference in like the lives of like these DDT fans who were like following his stuff from lockdown who were not having the normal experience of being able to go to shows like people Mm -hmm. looked forward to that content so that was really like striking to me when I was like trying to figure out how I was going to get into DDT like what was my in and my mm-hmm. in just became Hiroshima I mean he's like he's already sort of very easy for me to kind of understand and kind of get into but then in seeing like that type of content from him I was like oh I think I think he's the guy for sure yeah all right he really does flash like a perfect if you've never seen the videos just to describe for any listeners just like a perfect stunning Hiroshima smile at the end of all these ridiculous quite often super challenging moves <laughs> at times it almost feels like he's being a little sadistic with a smile <laughs> because you know like you could imagine him as a personal trainer and it would oh be, yeah yeah it'd be almost a painful experience so it'd be a very painful experience I had a little bit of that side to me but mostly when I was teaching classes um I started repurposing the warm up for George St. Pierre's Rush Fit DVDs, which mm. are my favorite workout DVDs ever. Um, kind of for the opposite of the reason that we love Hiroshima is that he doesn't smile. Like George St. Pierre, at the peak of his athleticism, was still competing when he shot these DVDs. And he is like not angry, but amiably miserable the entire time, <laughs> complaining about how he hates these workouts, talking about how hard they are. And to be able to see like one of the most dangerous men in the world at the time this was filmed struggling, like gives you the permission to struggle too. I just adore it. But anyway, another thing I loved about the DVDs was that they have, it's a 10 minute full body warm up that starts pretty gentle and gets more challenging. Um, and if you do it at warm up speed, it's an effective warm up. I say if you want to do it again a little harder, you can actually get a 20 minute workout of it, out of it. And it's great. But I was, repurposing it for gym classes because people tend to get really competitive there and you have to throw them a little more than you would be comfortable with if you're like a smart trainer because otherwise they think they won't be challenged so I would give them a repurposed version of this 10 minute warm-up and it start really slow and everyone would be really smug and then by the end of the 10 minutes I'd be okay we're done the warm-up with like a really mean perky smile and then it all grown um, <laughs> And be like, yeah, that'll be a workout. Um, so that that was one of the few mean sides I had as a trainer, but it was it was very satisfying. So yeah, <laughs> I can both see and identify with a little bit of that sadistic smile at the end of the Hiroshima videos. 
I think you had also mentioned um, just sort of keeping it on the like trend of wrestling and fitness and, and sort of your relationship with that, that you started lifting weights because of Trish Stratus. I did. Yes. So I was like lifelong terrible at gym. I like a short little skinny weakling who had undiagnosed exercise-induced asthma for most of my school gym career. So when I was getting this weird burning in my chest every time we did cardio, I thought everyone had got that and that I was just a baby. And it wasn't until I got a puffer that I knew how to cardio. Um, So like I was tuned out of exercise and sports because I thought they'd never be for me, in part because of my size and... I guess my gender a little bit too because I'm a little bit older and then I had just started watching wrestling and I thought oh that's interesting they move differently I could maybe do that but not really because obviously they're so much bigger than me because I'm short and I'm a weakling um but I have what I thought were chunky thighs at the time and now I think are not big enough because perspectives can change (laughs) um and the in Niagara Falls, they were opening a like WWE themed store and ride because that's Niagara Falls for you. It was a shopping experience, a little mall, and then a ride on top called the Pile Driver. And it was oh, WWE no. Niagara <laughs> Falls. Um, and my then boyfriend, now husband, was, you know, full time editor at the time, got offered to cover it for the magazine. So he took me to the opening. We took a hydrofoil across Lake Ontario to go to um, Niagara Falls to go to this opening for this thing. And Trish Stratus was one of the representatives at the time. The other two representatives were Val Venus and Chris Benoit. Um, But (laughs) Trish is the actual one who went on the hydrofoil with us. She fed us all donuts for some reason. And then (laughs) we got to Niagara Falls and had this like catered buffet lunch and press conference before we went to the store and while I was hobbling around at the buffet I was going into the bathroom and Trish Stratus came out and in this split second I just looked at her and she was only a couple of inches taller than me and obviously much better built than me because you know she actually worked out but I looked at her and even though I didn't think I could be her because she was a fitness model before she was a wrestling like a professional wrestler at the time somehow just seeing that she wasn't that much taller than me made it all feel real and accessible and I was like okay she's not that much bigger I'll get lift away I could be not her but kind of like her in a certain way um so yeah I started picking up weights because of Trish Stratus and yeah never looked like her but like felt good in a way that I was in a slightly stratus inspired category that hadn't felt like real or appreciated enough to be before that like moment of realization in a toilet the most sarah story i just love it from start to finish It is there's there's like, a lot of Sarah-isms in there, Niagara Falls. Yeah, the Niagara Falls, yeah. like yep. a weird ride I don't understand. Like, it's like almost like a fever dream. Like, it's it's <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I actually just found out that it got sold and exists somewhere in Africa, and I forget where, but it's, yeah, like just on Twitter two days ago. I'm like, wow, the pile driver survived. That's so nice. Yeah, the That's store so is a brewery funny. now, and it, it's a nice brewery, but it doesn't have a pile driver ride which was like a drop zone ride. That's what it was, basically. 
that you could sort of overlook the Niagara River. I don't think you could even see the falls from the top of it. I never went on it because I was a chicken. Um, but I shopped at that store many times over the years, make little pilgrimages to it. And yeah. Oh my God. How could you not? I was uh, really into their energy drink they had for a while. It was this like neon blue color raw themed energy drink in the early 2000s. It didn't go well. So they were fire sailing it for like six months after and I would just go get discounted like fake monster from the WWE Niagara Falls store. (laughs) That's outstanding. I'm sure you could probably get a crate of it on eBay now, too. Oh, probably. You know? For a lot That's more than that paid, yeah. <laughs> but I love that you have a story like that with, like, Trish Stratus and weightlifting. Because, like, I have a, like, I think, and maybe I've told you, like, I don't remember, Sarah. But, like, I have, like, a similar story with, like, watching Sakuraba and, like, understanding, <laughs> like, jiu-jitsu for the first time. And then, like, coming home from, like, a long stint working in Australia and, like, finding a um, a school and, like, narrowing it down to, like, what place I thought I would want to train in. Um, and then doing jiu-jitsu for a while because I was, like, really inspired by him and him saying, like, like anyone can, like, be good at this. <laughs> like, he doesn't, like, say yeah. it quite like that, but it's, like, the, the whole point of jiu-jitsu is that, like, you can be a, like, very small person and still, like, defeat much larger people than you. That's, like, that's the entire Sakuraba sort of um methodology is that he was like a much smaller person lying about his weight to go and defeat much larger men than him um Mm -hmm. in pride so that was like super um inspiring to me that's why I ended up doing jiu-jitsu for a while so yeah it's funny how many of us wind up getting I think sucked into that in one way or another it's I don't know there's something about that yeah and it's also just we don't want to exactly be that person it's something about that story that inspires us to help us to find our own ways feel and that's the the word I loved was that you used was accessible it makes it all feel accessible like Sakuraba makes it feel like it's not impossible to overcome these things and and Trish you know it's like well you know I can actually can maybe get there um or get to a place where I'm at least proud of what I've done uh, and that's what I think your book really strives to achieve is making these things feel accessible and people will sit down and read it and go, you know, actually, this isn't that impossible. And um, that's a really, really noble and worthy goal. And I'm very excited to pick it up. And I, I hope a lot of people are. And I'm sure a lot of people listening will be excited to pick that up, too. Thank so you, your, babe. I hope your so. book will be somebody's Trish Stratus. That would yes. be amazing. <laughs> Pre-order on Amazon today. I have my copy pre-ordered and I'm getting increasingly more excited that it keeps reminding me that it's coming soon. So please do that. Amazing. So let's jump over to, um, we've talked a lot about wrestling. We've talked a lot about DDT, but we haven't talked enough about DDT, I don't <laughs> think. And specifically, we haven't really talked about the man himself. We We did mention that you wanted to put some Sasaki in the book and you did hit Naito who is they have some similarities in a lot of ways uh, <laughs> and, uh, they, they have some connections there but let's talk a little bit about Daisuke Sasaki uh, so when we first proposed the ep- this episode we jokingly sort of wanted to discuss the disappearance of Daisuke Sasaki we like framed it as a true crime kind of thing <laughs> And uh, more as a means of discussing how overlooked he is in the Western fandom, just in general, especially uh, in terms of his storyline with Ibushi and Kenny Omega. However, (laughs) 
since then, he has had an actual little disappearance storyline where he ran away from DDT. It was very overdramatic, um, and he, he is already back. But uh, I thought that was very funny and very timely that we ended up with the disappearance of Daisuke Sasaki. The oft-threatened but never pulled the trigger on before now disappearance <laughs> of Daisuke Sasaki. <laughs> Yeah, you didn't expect it. You you didn't no. actually see it coming. He had com- actually lulled me into a false sense of security after I'd been following him for five years of like threats of retirement and disappearance. Um, so when he said it this time, I was like, ha ha, yeah, no, please don't retire. Um, and then he went and disappeared on us. But uh, in in actuality, he went to go get surgery on his eye. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. He um. So when he reappeared, it was in fact first surgery for his left eye for uh, muscle paralysis. In fact, yet another thing he has in common with Tetsuya Naito is that is the surgery that Naito went through too, for the same issue. Yeah, that but- was uh, that was a connection we talked about. Is that uh, he sort of does these little parodies and send ups, but in this case, there was like an actual connection there. <laughs> yeah, there was a moment where I was like. Was he out for some other reason? And this is just his kayfabe explanation because it just seemed so on the nose. Um, But no, he still managed to do his own riff on it. I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, Naito was seeing double for some matches. So, uh, of course, Sasaki was seeing eight people (laughs) during matches. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not to be outdone. Of course not. (laughs) Because it can't be Sasaki unless there's some sort of grandiose, ridiculous hyperbole involved in it. But, uh, yeah, I think you mentioned that he might actually run off to Mexico this time. He has a show booked, apparently, mid-April in Mexico. Oh, interesting. It's actually making me a little nervous now that he is coming through on his threats. Because the other thing he's threatening is to turn that just announced El Desperado match at Peter Pan into a mask versus hair match. I didn't actually know that. I has I was going to ask you about the Peter Pan match. Um, I was I was literally just about to seg into it, and I didn't know that he was threatening to turn that into mask versus. Yeah, hair. I believe that's another Tokyo Sports interview he just did. It's hard to tell how much of this is real and how much of this is Sasaki's hyperbole. Of course, he was recently trying to have a hair versus mask match with El Unicorn, who went and took his own mask off anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I think the claim is, and I could be wrong about this, that he has purchased expensive 4,000 yen shampoo to invest in his hair so that it's a worthwhile thing to try to hold on to. Um, but then he has also said that he's going to move to America to work part-time where the minimum wage is 4,000 yen an hour. So um, I don't know really what's going on there because I think shampoo that you can earn in an hour at your fancy new part-time job in America where all of that really happens is maybe not that much to spend on your perfect hair. (laughs) I want to live in Sasaki's version of America. I I know it would be wonderful if that existed. Yep really high minimum wage you only have to work part-time at mcdonald's to survive there's you know beautiful women everywhere showing off their tits um yeah extraordinary (laughs) i love the drama of a potential hair versus mask match though i don't know how i don't know how feasible it is i mean 
and Sarah, Sarah, in your opinion, is that a foregone conclusion that Sasaki loses his hair? And how do you feel about that? Devastated. How do you feel about a like, I, I mean, I'm sure he'll still be lovely looking, but I am more invested in this stranger's hair than I really should be. Um, even as Ted Lasso comes back on and everyone else I know thinks Trent Krim has the most beautiful hair in the world, uh, I only think he has the second most beautiful hair in the world <laughs> because <laughs> Daisuke Sasaki is my number one. Um, I think it really speaks to how beautiful that head of hair is that he has to grease it down before matches just to hide how luscious it is so we, people will actually boo him because otherwise everyone would be mesmerized. But you can see it at press conferences when it's clean and stuff. That is the most gorgeous shiny luscious mane that a man has ever had in the history of men's <laughs> hair <laughs> it's just and, beautiful and that's and before the uh 4, yen shampoo that's right it's only going to get shinier now um, <laughs> fuller we'll see but yeah um i shouldn't care what a stranger does with their head but i am emotionally invested in this hair and every time he teases a hair versus something match which he has done quite a few times and in yeah. fact had a hair versus hair match against akito many years ago and mercifully that was a little before my time so i didn't have to live through that stress of actually watching the match but yeah if this actually does turn out to be a hair versus mask match we're gonna have to say goodbye to it um and yeah i will not handle that like a grown-up even though I should respect a complete stranger's choices about what to do with their follicles. Um, <laughs> I, I do want to point out, though, he actually did wrestle a Daisuke versus Daisuke match um, where he put his name on the line and mercifully that ended in a draw so he didn't have to lose his name. I don't know how he's going to get around that. <laughs> um, I didn't know there's... that. And that makes so much more sense because um, Keno was actually teasing that in one of his shoe pros. Like he was oh, talking yeah. about like dice gays and how they could put up their name. With, <laughs> the, joke, the joke is, is that Keno doesn't use dice gay as his yeah. name. Um, his shoot name is dice gay Nakai. But um, yeah, so I'm so glad for that context now because that makes everything <laughs> make a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm sure there are ways he could weasel out of it, but I don't know, maybe he's sick of having the most glorious hair in the history of the world. I wouldn't, I, you know, die with it. Um, but yeah. Or it could just be his way to wind up the fan base again because he clearly knows it works. Um, he has his fan base's numbers and pushes our buttons constantly. That's he's what makes a it. great professional wrestler, honestly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he's, um, for all his talk about his punk ethos and, you know, the whole don't kiss ass theory of damnation, don't conform, don't kiss ass, don't get married um, mantra, the don't kiss ass was about not, like, patronizing your audience. And that could mean everything from, like, not signing autographs after after a show because Chaos UK never did that, Um She's just not pandering during a match or even caring that you want to like watch and connect with them because you're going to respect them to follow it or not and you don't give a shit. But, you know, outside of that posturing and character, he's clearly a um, very smart performer who keeps an eye on what's happening and knows how to needle the people who are invested in him and knows how to really fuck with the people who don't like him. It's all very satisfying. 
I really, I like that. I like that you pointed that out because he really is um, unsung in a lot of ways in the Western fan base, despite being a um, really pivotal piece of DDT and just like the history of DDT and where he sort of said, and even you just like explaining how, you know, Naito saw double, so therefore he saw eight. That is the most, it's the most Sasaki thing, but it's also the most DDT thing. Like that is the core of DDT to me is that you take something that is happening and then you parody it and you amplify it and you make it more and more wrestling and add more of that, you know, flavor to it. And that's something that Saki does so, so well. So a lot of people who either watch DDT, you know, casually or have just gotten into it, or perhaps only watch it from a distance on Twitter seem to really overlook this about him and, and why he is so important. He has, once you go over his career, most of which has been in DDT, pretty much since he arrived on the scene, um, been in some of the biggest factions and headed one of the biggest factions, probably the biggest faction in modern DDT history. Um, he has been either at the side of or directly in front of every wrestler who has grown and mattered in that promotion. You... If you're paired with or put in the crossfires of Daisuke Sasaki in DDT, that means the promotion believes in you. You're going to be something in that promotion. Um, and he has been the hero. He's been the villain. But even when he's not like a main player, he is a major part of driving everything that happens in DDT. Like just such an important force. Um, actually, I have a really nerdy aside, if you guys wouldn't mind. No, not okay. at all. Please. So, my favorite book ever is a Canadian novel by a guy named Robertson Davies. We studied this in high school. I don't think anyone outside of Canada had to. It's called Fifth Business. It's um, about a magician in small town Ontario um, and something twisted that happens. But it's all told from the perspective of someone who is assumed to be a bit player who didn't matter, who shows how... It was him at the heart of all the fucked up shit that happened in this town and internationally because of it. So it's called Fifth Business. Um, and here's the definition of fifth business that is in the front of the book. The roles which, being neither those of hero nor heroine, confident nor villain, but which were nonetheless essential to bring about the recognition of the denouement, were called the fifth business and drama and opera companies organized according to the old style. The player who acted these parts was often referred to as fifth business, which has been a lot of Sasaki's career in DDT. Another side note, even nerdier than that side note, um, that is presented as a quote from an old um, drama textbook in the front of fifth business. That's a kayfabe quote. Robertson Davies made it up because his publishers are like, no one's going to understand what business is. And he made it up. So he just wrote a fake definition for it too. Um, but it has become especially in Canadian literary circles to be known as its own thing um and I think about it a lot because I, it's my favorite book um but it also I think explains how Sasaki has constantly kept like the greater wheels of DDT turning even when he's not the star um and he's also like spinning his own stories that whole time because there is always some nonsense happening in Sasaki's world even if it's only a tweet or an aside backstage um there is something entertaining that's going on with him. 
which is part of why it drives me nuts that it's so missed by a lot of especially the modern English speaking fans who just think he shows up and hits a chair and causes like the most predictable heel shit ever and then doesn't try when in fact yeah every little like perfect chair fling um, is pretty well orchestrated to make the heels and faces of the next generation rise and keep everyone looking important and great and yeah I mean I think in a way it's a perverse compliment that he's so unsung by people who can't understand that because that is exactly what he's trying to do um but for the nerds who love him dearly it can be a little frustrating to see that people are missing the point and you know being the marks they so fancy themselves not to be I think this really speaks to what we've talked about as um, three of us, like offline, but also on the podcast a bit, is that my theory is that people like Sasaki, but also people like um, Hiroshima to some degree as well. Like there are these core people in DDT who really make up like that backbone of the company that are such integral players to what truly makes DDT as a company that fans just miss all the time because they're so focused on the and this is not to disparage any of these guys but they're so focused on like the the Kanosuke Takeshita's and mm-hmm. um those like very accessible guys like the you'll see it with like Ueno and you'll see you know the like the focus on like those type of guys who are just very easy to understand and accessible to a very mm-hmm. mainstream audience but DDT was never really supposed to be like I think meant for a very ultra mainstream audience they are really like a very you know to be honest like punk rock promotion in the way that they mm-hmm. were formed um and I think that people we've talked about this as a group and Sarah like your thoughts on this are always excellent but I think there's just um like Sasaki unfortunately like as brilliant as he is as important as he is and this has and like the way that he has driven the careers of so many people in that company um, he is part of that contingent that just gets completely overlooked by people who don't quite understand what DDT actually is. Yeah, it's everyone who kind of came in because they liked it to catch the match or they, they see the work rate of the accessible young guys. Um, they weren't around to see any of these incredible older stars get established. Um, and I just don't think they're particularly curious or excited enough to look underneath and so they're looking at all this like shiny new coding that DDT has which is still wonderful uh, but not really looking into the foundation of why it's there or what's happening or what keeps it moving in between those you know five six star matches and high spots um because I do think something is lost when you look at DDT only for the moves and the wrestling. Um, And I think that's maybe part of why people struggle so much with Sasaki is because he has those moments. We all know that he can wrestle at that level. Um, And he holds back um, whatever his reason is for doing that in real life. I assumed to know absolutely nothing about this man because he sets incredible boundaries in between his real life and anything we know about him. But like, even in kayfabe, he picks his moments. He has all the talent in the world and will subvert that by cutting corners whenever he wants to. And 
all these new English speaking fans are coming in and they keep saying they want fire, which as far as I can tell, just means they want people to yell excitedly, really passionately. Um, because anytime I've seen Endo finally get praised for having fire, it just means he yelled. Um, <laughs> that's like the only difference I see in the match. Like someone who really analyzes Endo matches. Um, and Sasaki will consistently subvert that by having the potential, but showing sort of nihilistic glee or just depressed apathy instead of fire in the moments where it counts um and even though he's perfectly capable of doing the move will find a way to take a shortcut or undermine something and will only occasionally you know rise to what is actually happening and show what he can do or do his twice annual fling himself into a table um yeah people don't who are coming in for the seven star banger are going to be particularly happy with the guy who refuses to put it on because he doesn't want to be accessible to them. Alicia, you had a really good quote when we were sort of talking off the air. I have it uh, written down, but do you remember what it was? After this week, Rachel, absolutely not. What did I say? (laughs) (laughs) People who don't really watch DDT are always trying to make DDT into what they think it should be from their lens of what they normally watch. To be fair, that is something that Sarah has also said. So I cannot take full and total credit for that, but it it is no less um, extremely true. And I think that you can make that argument too for, um, I would even say like all Japan sometimes I think gets this as well, especially like more contemporary all Japan but nobody gets this like DDT um, with people trying to uh, to bring their sort of Western way of watching wrestling or like even just like, you know, when I mean, you can always tell a new Japan fan has come into the <laughs> chat um, when they're trying to discuss aspects of DDT because it's like, I don't think people fully realize that these companies all have very different identities and DDT has a very different stark identity to the other um quote unquote major players in the Japanese wrestling scene. Like DDT knows who it is and is pretty consistent with that vision. Maybe wobbling in the title scene a little more. Although now that Oishi's getting involved in hijinks, I trust it a touch more. Um but it's a clear vision they deliver on. And anyone who's gonna come in and treated as like some goofy kid who hasn't like smartened up and gone to business school yet or whatever is it's convincing so much it's you know anytime DDT has one of their big shows and there's some like bizarre thing that happens with an anal explosion that somehow turns into this like really emotional inspiring love story or something like that just all the turns it takes that's not a diversion that they need to give up to be taken seriously. That that's the core in the heart of DDT. Like you're not going to have all of the characters that make sense in the way that you would see them in another promotion because they are following up on their own stories and doing their own thing and these characters are there because they exist in that ecosystem and that's where they belong and that's where they flourish. Daisuke Sasaki, the like ne'er-do-well problem child who uh, even in text is, I believe they're all saying now, a monster of Imabayashi's creation. (laughs) 
for letting him get away with shit all the time. Endo has called Imbabayashi out on this in like even autograph sessions. Like it's your fault he's like this because no one ever disciplines him. Um, that is all happening in DDT because it works there and it makes everyone else better too. And not the same old shit if you actually pay attention to him either like yeah he's gonna fuck up a match if he's not winning or he got bored but he's also gonna go backstage and say something completely outlandish about why it's happening and then tell you his plans to go get married on the moon in 2020 or something like there is always more going on than just like bored heel through a chair and ruined a match i love that framing i love the way you say that with um, these wrestlers are existing within their own ecosystem and that just strikes a chord to me because I see this all the time you see it all the time people trying to frame it uh, based on what they like like this is exit like damnation is their version of bullet club or something like that um which oh or of course the infamous 2018 reddit post Daisuke Sasaki is like the undertaker <laughs> oh that's a good one I, yeah I think the only reason that happened is because when he had the casket match against Dino at Peter Pan 2018 the casket came out to the Undertaker's theme and I think someone just like <laughs> heard that saw black and was like well there's their Undertaker <laughs> I guess they skipped the entire part of the match where it was in part about Sasaki versus his impulses and wearing you know fishnets as compression tights to tamper his urges and keep everything in place that's very generous because that would imply that they ever had the match on they saw a <laughs> a clip a video clip of just the coffin coming yeah, out and made that assumption on that's and that's the issue with like some of that stuff on twitter like people just they gotta get a takeoff they just gotta get a takeoff yeah and it's I mean, it's still wrestling, so I don't want to be like, it cannot be comprehended in a tweet. But, like, you're you're not going to get the whole vibe of DDT from a GIF or from the number of stars you see in a match. Like, or whether it gets on your spreadsheet or not. It's, it's a very different little creature. But also to your point about, like, the ecosystem, like, I feel like there's, and this is maybe slightly off topic, but while we're here, while we're here yes. during Sarah's, you know, book release party. I feel like, you know, I don't, and again, I didn't bring up Takeshita to be disparaging, but Takeshita is absolutely a product of DDT. Like he's been in like matches and situations where like he's doing outlandish things just the same as some of the like major players in DDT who are kind of always in like the more outlandish matches and doing like the more um, like controversial quote unquote things that people are like seeing on Twitter and reacting to. Um, so it's interesting the way that people try to like I think separate that in their mind like Sasaki is like always a guy I think for people that like he's always a part of that so he gets kind of put in a box over here mm -hmm. but people can make Takeshita into something else that separates him from his identity as a DDT wrestler even though like Takeshita will never stop being a DDT wrestler yeah it's and it's like erasing his agency as a grown-ass man to assume that this is childish stuff he will outgrow to become a serious wrestler in AEW, where they do things that Kenny clearly got from DDT all the time, and people don't credit DDT for that either. Um, like, not only does Takeshita choose to do this stuff, he's actually really good at it. Um, uh, my favorite 
to catch in a match, I think is, well, other than his Endo series um, and his Sasaki series, was the one I saw in person in Brooklyn, which was Takagi and Takeshita against the monsters of Kaiju Big Battle just running around the streets of Brooklyn, <laughs> where, you know, this future, like, serious star of AEW was starting a go-to-whole-foods chant for no reason as he was fighting <laughs> monsters on a couch and then suplexed or mutant sheep on the top of a U-Haul truck. Like, there's not only skill there, but there's vision and there's like a sensibility and a sense of humor that it's not like someone told Takeshi to just do all that and he performed it well as a performer. Like he's in on the joke and participates in it and has his own vision for it. Um, so like not only you're treating him as some like silly baby who needs to be rescued by serious wrestling, you're discounting a lot of his talent if you are not into that part too. Um, so yeah, I guess the other thing is that it's its own punishment that if you're not enjoying that side of Takeshita, you're missing out. Um, and then missing out on the rest of DDT, I guess, which, which is its own punishment. But it's also frustrating because then we have to deal with the takes of people getting all this stuff we care about bizarrely wrong and just being like uninformed critical assholes about it. Yeah, that's unfortunately the life of a wrestling fan and it does crop up. <laughs> probably the most out of any uh promotion I've seen and mm-hmm. I we've been in the trenches for a lot of them <laughs> but uh <laughs> I, I definitely think DDT suffers through some of the worst of it and I'm I'm sort of glad you brought where we're bringing up this subject and sort of um the tone of DDT and you mentioned the title scene and you mentioned Oishi being uh, involved now which is very nice to see um because we had had some um I guess, questions about where DDT was heading in its current landscape. And what I really wanted to know was how do you feel Daisuke Sasaki fits into the current landscape of DDT and sort of that title scene? I am not sure where this is going to go. I kind of assumed he'd never be going after the KOD again as a credible threat at this point in his career. But things might revive depending on how long he's in Mexico, how that goes, um, what happens with El Desperado when he gets back. Um, but there's also something kind of weird about that canon relationship where the original Damnation acted like, like you know, squabbling siblings all the time. And they turned on each other all the time and forgave each other. But it seems like maybe there's a little more menace to canon and like maybe something else is going on or maybe it's just that they're still finding their way because they really haven't spent that much time together yet as a unit so maybe it's just awkward and i'm reading too much into it but canon didn't particularly care that sasaki had disappeared um and <laughs> didn't put a lot of effort into finding him beyond the first little phone call that was documented on ddt's twitter accounts of just being like hey where are you it's sasaki being like oh gone so um <laughs> and it is a point that was brought up in one of the Tokyo sports articles that Canada never bothered to visit him in the hospital and that no one from Damnation did. So I don't know if that feud is brewing before anything else hits a space in the title scene. Um, oh, and also when Cannon was challenging for the 
universal title against Doi. And his goal is to like inspire Sasaki to come back with his universal challenge after Sasaki lost the belt. Well, I mean, he lost his opportunity at the belt in the three-way against Doi, Ueno, and Sasaki in January. Um, and he was the first eliminated. So that was the vision of Cannon going to bring Sasaki back by winning what he couldn't, I guess. He did the Vietnam Driver 2, which is a move that Sasaki inherited from his trainer, Dick Togo, and called attention to it on Twitter. So something is festering there. Um, I don't know how that's going to play out and where it will lead. So that might take priority out of him doing anything else. I think we all sort of itch when we look at the history that Yuji Hino and Daisuke Sasaki have. And especially the post-damnation years of their bond. To see that there's always just like a little spark that festers when they interact with each other. And Sasaki acts like a complete prick to his friend who is still trying to figure out like why he ghosted him. Uh, that could lead to something interesting. Especially because Hino, as we've talked about as a group, um, focuses on him bringing some kind of heavyweight style to DDT that was ostensibly lacking even though no one had exactly been tiny in the title picture before that in the near future in like in the near past <laughs> um so yeah it would be satisfying to see that history played upon with someone who is of course 5'5 five five, um and very solid but still never going to be a heavyweight it would be I think fun just from a perspective of contesting an open weight belt to see it become an argument of size, um, then take into their history, their dynamic and their chemistry. Um, but I'm kind of afraid that we're not going to see that during Hino's reign. So someone I think is going to unseat him. And I really don't believe Sasaki's going to reach that level. Um, he might enter the universal title picture. That's the one I'm wondering about more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he disappeared after losing his opportunity at the belt, and then mm -hmm. his new number two, Cannon, failed to win the belt back to impress him. But his old number two, Tetsuya Endo, just won the belt. Um, and even though they're in as good a place as two members of original Damnation could ever be with each other right now, um, which is to say fond of each other, but willing to turn on each other at any moment, just to forgive each other again. Um that might surface before we see any other title pictures for Sasaki. Yeah, I like that. I like the the whole overview there because you do raise a really good point about the universal. And um, but you also do raise a good point about his history with Hino as well. And um, again, that's another one where history is often overlooked there with um you know and you know he was back in was the monster army yeah with uh, antonio hondo yeah um so they had history even before that and then you know we we see them in damnation and then post damnation so there there was something that's always brewing and i think you know anything could come into play with um sasaki in all of these sort of corners because he does have such a rich history in ddt which brings us very nicely to his history with Golden Lovers as Golden Storm Riders, which I think a lot of uh, fans tend to overlook as well because it, it sort of ties into what you guys were saying, where people sort of focus on what they think DDT is or was and don't really care 
or interested enough to go back and sort of look and watch and learn? Yeah, so so much of what modern Western wrestling fans understand about the Golden Lovers comes from only a couple of sources now. And those sources are very pro, like Penny and Coda against the world. So a lot of the greater context of who they were, who they worked with, and how they functioned within DDT has been kind of erased. And that also erases like other people they were around because part of the narrative is turned into Koto Ibushi being the ace of DDT, which he never really was. That's Hiroshima. So um, it's yet another way that Hiroshima is getting burned by the fandom. But the thing is, Sasaki was actually there for most of the stories that have now been shared as sort of Kenny and Koda alone against the world. Um, he was quite often basically like in the parlance of the Mr. Show, the third wheel legend. Um, <laughs> Or even kind of their third, if you want to look at it <laughs> that way from that lens of uh, a lot of the hallmarks and like big moments of what they did in their time in DDT. Sasaki was already also there um, 2001 and 2012 best of the super juniors um, when the golden lovers were starting to foster that rivalry with, rivalry with Apollo 55. They were also doing multi-man tag matches. And when they were, the third person with Kenny and Koda was Daisuke Sasaki. And when his then faction, I believe it was when he was with, um, just after he left the Italian Four Horsemen, um, that was when he started teaming with Kenny and Koda. And then I believe it was after he left Monster Army that he officially asked to join them. And when they started to form Golden Rendezvous, which then became Golden Storm Riders. So even though this like bond of the tag team partner was forming, there was a group around them. And the number one person who was usually around them was Daisuke Sasaki. And mercifully, he posed in the middle of those three-man tag shots so that people can't just cut him out of the side of photos when they're sharing old Kenny and Koda photos now. So at least they have to acknowledge that there was a person around them at some points of their career. Um, but yeah, there was... The Golden Lovers were an important tag team. They had a story that was only with each other, but they were also, to take it back to this, characters who lived in that ecosystem and they were never really just alone. They were extremely talented, but they weren't, you know, completely separate from anyone else they were working with. And I think that's always been one of Kenny's greatest strengths is that he, you know, rises to the talent of people around him and elevates them and works within a whole to tell stories but somehow he has become the only one that people can latch on to when they're explaining why they like wrestling. So he gets praised as a singular talent when he is a collaborative artist so that everyone he shines with, except Coda, who has gotten the same level of recognition and praise from this audience, um, just no longer exists and either is detrimental to the narrative they're trying to share or just like inconvenient to try to incorporate in and just apparently not worth people's time, even though they were integral parts of the story and great parts of the matches and just, you know, entertaining components in their own right. I think that's a lot of what wrestling comes down to is 
these complicated relationships and these components and this ecosystem, um, which is such, it's such a good framing for DDT, especially because it has its own culture and it, it's just such a unique, um, unique ecosystem in and of its own right. So that's, that's just a really good way to put it and a really good way to sort of, um, bring it down to how a lot of people see DDT because, you know, Takeshita, a lot of people view as being sort of separated from the silly side of DDT as well in much how they see, you know, Ibushi and um, Omega as being sort okay. of separated from that. So um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating that you sort of bring up how this has persisted throughout I guess the history of DDT's fandom or, or the Twitter sphere um, observing DDT, I guess I should say. It is frustrating. I guess the, the silver lining of this though, is that there are so many different, you know, rabbit holes you can go down if you don't want just that main picture um, that you can also pick apart your own threads and figure out where the history is, which of the characters you want to follow um, and which components click, which is, why you know i started watching wrestling again when the golden lovers reunited and i was originally super into that story um which brought me to ddt which made me fall in love with ddt for its own reasons because and i've said this a million times before but it is the most in line i think of any entertainment in any medium with my you know personal proclivities as an art consumer and i don't know what that says about me as a person but <laughs> i'm cool with where i am in that appreciation right now <laughs> But it's also when I started to follow that story and be like, oh, there was another guy around the Golden Lovers and they abandoned him and he turned into a like lovelorn rejected loser and then formed his own cult of lovelorn rejected losers and an alien baby. Um, and then, you know, played a part in breaking up who were supposed to be the next Golden Lovers to turn one of them goth and much cooler. Um, well, as cool as damnation could get like that started to compel me far more than anything else and it's also I just think very me to be like oh look at this story it's beautiful I like the one who is left behind <laughs> let's follow his festering tragedy yeah and then plus you know when I started to watch DDT that was when he was embroiled in the big love saga with Asuka mm -hmm. um, which was funny and entertaining in its own right but also interesting to me to watch someone who was just willing to be the butt of the joke it, that it was always that he was not good enough for Asuka and that she was playing him and it, she was never like an object of scorn other than in his eyes but we all knew he was wrong in that case um so to watch that story which then turned into him having to wear fishnets as compression tights to help him deal with all of his vices um to having a feud with Dino for the future of DDT and I was like yeah this guy's fascinating also he has beautiful hair and he's smoking hot <laughs> um <laughs> here's someone I can follow and even when he's not the one holding the belt anymore he will be doing something that intrigues me and he has not let me down in the past five years even when he actually does run away least he comes back pretty quickly <laughs> he did yeah <laughs> but it felt like forever as someone who never actually believed he would run away because I was just like oh it's just another retirement threat we get these all the time 
Yeah, I think that's that perfectly encapsulates um, a lot of things. It encapsulates Daisuke Sasaki. It encapsulates what DDT is, um, how it tells its stories, uh, sort of becoming a little bit of a running theme. And uh, we talked a lot about um, accessibility, getting into things, um, and the way you you got into DDT was sort of through this wider, more accessible storyline that you know brought you down and that ties in to your book and your book be being a wider more accessible um version of fitness to sort of get people into it when they're when they're in a space where it might just not be accessible to them so I think that sort of brings everything all together Alicia do you have any comments thoughts well I just want to mention that Sarah you're going to the collective shows and yes, all that am. so oh. why don't you let everybody know uh, the matches that you're most looking forward to seeing live since you'll be there you're our man on the scene for these shows well um obviously looking forward to uh damnation ta versus junakiyama and eddie kingston uh for the reason everyone else is obviously like everyone else in the world i am thrilled for eddie that he's finally getting to live his dream and team with his idol um but also, you know, as the shit-stained Daisuke Sasaki fan, I know in this crowd in America where everyone is excited for Eddie and worships Akiyama and a lot of them don't understand Sasaki, the second he does something underhanded to bring the match down, people are going to get mad for real. And I will feel like reborn and rejuvenated. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> gleeful that this is happening. Um, so yeah, the match in general is going to be great, but just like watching Sasaki get to fuck with that specific audience is going to do wonders for me. Um, I, I kind of wish that Tetsuya Endo had a different singles match than Joey Janela, um, but oh, yeah. I'm just really excited to be able to see Endo wrestle in person again for the first time in four years. Um, and I think anything he, do, he does will be exciting. Um, uh, the other group that I was really really into when I started watching DDT was Moonlight Express so seeing Moonlight Express reunite on the DDT versus GCW card that's going to be a huge one for me um and then I'm also going to the Tokyo Joshi Pro show which I'm looking forward to seeing all of them because there, there's no one I don't love in that company but I'm really excited that Daisy Monkey are on the card of the promising young tag team of Suzume and Arisa Endo who are you know just very athletic and talented but they've also like done a couple of things with gato move and Chaco pro now and they've got that little bit of sakura tiny annoying buzzing around being better than everyone else and faster than everyone else vibe now and i just can't wait to see where that goes that's so exciting you have like so many cool things that you're gonna be able to see in person i'm like stoked for you i'm like i'm absolutely thrilled it's um it's been a long time coming and also the last time i got to see DDT was right after i filed the first draft of my first book so this feels like a reward I get when I do a book now um, <laughs> it's amazing how that like really worked out both times so far so, so far, I mean I should really hurry up and write another book because I don't want to wait that long again <laughs> hopefully bring like a big show over next Wrestlemania uh, oh yes and I'm think I'm thinking if you uh if you write a write another book no I'm not gonna rush you <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't be out in time. So I've really got to hope that like something about this pattern breaks and I get an extra one. 
<laughs> a novella maybe I don't know yeah <laughs> just a really really long essay <laughs> yeah could it just happen anytime I publish an essay that would be great there we go. that'd yeah. be great yeah just start writing like endo essays for us we'll publish every single one and get a good match out of them <laughs> yeah that would be wonderful just like constant because I keep threatening this it's been years and I say I'm going to write like a 50,000 word manifesto on why endo's the best and is having managed to get it down yet so maybe this is the motivation i need chapter by chapter i can get a new match we need that's that get show. Us, yeah that's what's gonna get us the cyber fight uh show the full court press for like wrestlemania and Philly. <laughs> i can yeah, feel it all, all oh, four yeah. promotions yeah, yeah this is the one i also don't know what the essay is going to be about but i do want to write an essay called daisuke sasaki empathy for the devil yes mm-hmm. good title good title I love that yeah, because another thing I, I didn't get to bring up, uh, didn't get to bring up, is weird phrasing, <laughs> but another thing I think of about why he appeals to some people that I've noticed is I think part of his female fan base is the fact that he does little things, and I'm not even sure they're intentional, that we recognize from having been insecure teenage girls. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that. Like the hair in front of the face, um, the classic um, he quite often wears t-shirts during wrestling matches um, when we wore t-shirts to the pool um, and also does like a lot of goofy stuff when other people are doing sexy things during photo shoots which I think is like a defense mechanism for many a teenage girl so I think that's part of why his female fandom has latched onto him beyond the obvious um, yeah there's we think he's hot but we're also protective and want him to know he's hot and brilliant um, perhaps that's it <laughs> I really love that that's a really interesting angle to go for there's something about you know the shit stain with a secret heart who might be acting out of insecurity and also you know a touch of malice that that's good to keep it in the mix too but yeah and there's something else ticking it's a fantastic okay. trope we talked about that a lot sure do it's it's just a good one that's just catnip for fans like us exactly heart and soul of wrestling especially as we wind down sarah do you want to just remind the folks where they can pre-order work it out and where they can find your other works and such so work it out pre-order it basically anywhere you can order books um and it's all the same to me in terms of royalties if anyone's worried about that so yeah um it's obviously on amazon but it's like walmart target basically anywhere you can order a book you can find it uh you can also just go to quirk quirk's website i believe it's quirk.com um and order it there or they will direct you to other places you can order it um beyond that you can find me at fodder figure f-o-d-d-e-r-f-i-g-u-r-e um, and that's on twitter and instagram where you can see me post a lot of wrestling gifts on twitter um, a lot of photos of dead fish because i'm not very professional on instagram um, but they will also both have links to where you can buy both work it out and i overcame my autism when all i got was this lousy anxiety disorder and basically anywhere you can hear me ramble about promoting them or whatever other work i've convinced someone to pay me for these days all right. Thank you so much. And you can find me, Rachel, at Milky Star. That's M-I-I-K-Y Star. 
You can find me, Alicia, at Sharanui Kai with two eyes. You can find me and Rachel at Kickout299. And please make sure you give us um, a five-star rating, if you will, on your preferred plot, uh, podcast platform of choice that really is um, helping us out exponentially. So please keep that up, if you will. And thank you all very much in advance. Thank you all so much. And we will talk to you soon.